the gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text for today, comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. And as Jameson has mentioned already, this is the season of Epiphany that we will conclude starting this Wednesday, where we celebrate, where we remember uh, this time, this manifestation of Jesus as the Son of God, as the King who has come to deliver his people from their sin and bring the blessings of his kingdom as far as the curse is found. And with that manifestation also comes this call to his people to follow him as their king in that mission to reflect God's glory all around us, chiefly through our love of God and love of our neighbor. So with that in hand, let's read today's, let me read for you today's gospel lesson and just remind you this is God's word to us. It's given to us because... He loves us. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said, Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the gospel of our Lord. Let me uh, take a moment to pray for us before we dive into today's scripture lessons. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would speak to us now as we come to your word, that you would open our eyes to be able to see, uh, to see truly, to see rightly, to see with the sight of Christ. And we know that we need you to do this for us. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit, uh, you would give us this kind of sight to see the world around us transformed in your glory, and in your image, and in your likeness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So back in summer of 2017, I think that's right, um, our family traveled to Colorado, and a big family trip with a lot of Jesse's uh, brothers and sisters and parents. And that was the year that our family hiked our very first 14er, so 14,000-foot peak in the the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. And... um, the first one that we ever hiked up was named Mount Quandry. Quandry. I mean, quite the name for the uh, first mountain that you're ever going to summit that's 14,000 feet. I mean, because who wouldn't willingly walk into a quandry? 
that seems like a, a great idea. But uh, we made it, all five of us, you know, step by painstaking step, uh, which is really just like a few steps at a time, suck in air into your lungs as much as you can, a few more steps at a time, stop, suck in air as much as you can, and rinse and repeat all the way to the top. Uh, but we made it, and that was the first and the last 14,000 feet that I, foot peak that I ever climbed up, because uh, I was very much like, all right, that was great. Sure, the view was worth it. Uh, once you got to the top, it was majestic in all its glory for sure, and I was like, and I don't ever need to do this ever again. And uh, Eben, uh, our son, he decided the same thing. He was an overachiever, and basically sprinted up the last few hundred feet of the uh, ascent and then threw up all the way back down um, because it turns out he has pretty severe altitude sickness. And um, But, you know, it's crazy. There's this thing called the tree line, which is around 12,000 feet, uh, where the trees stop growing because there's not enough oxygen for them to grow anymore. And uh, he threw up all the way down until he hit that tree line. And it was just like this magical, invisible barrier. And all his sickness was just gone. Like Dorothy stepping out uh, into Oz, out of black and white into color. It was wild. Uh, Georgia also decided that was enough for her. She didn't need to do any more. Jesse, who's built different than the rest of us, have done multiple 14ers uh, since it. Oh, Georgia did one more. My apologies. So two and done. I was one and done. I didn't need to do that anymore. Uh, we love mountaintop experiences. Uh, we love these mountaintop experiences in our lives. And of course, they can be metaphorical. You don't have to physically climb to the top of a mountain. They can be any specific day in your life or days or hours or maybe even just a fleeting moment that are indelibly printed upon our hearts and our spirits that we remember for the rest of our lives. Scenes of such beauty and power and mystery that we sometimes have trouble even putting into words what these mountaintop experiences meant to us. I mean, for the apostles Peter, James, and John in our text today, they had one of these mountaintop experiences, literally on top of a mountain that was so beautiful and so powerful and so mysterious that they too struggled uh, to find words for it. Listen again to verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and they led him up to a high mountain by themselves, and it says that Jesus was transfigured before them. And then as we read in our passage, they then began to experience what this transfiguration meant. So Jesus was transfigured before them. The word there in the Greek, in the Greek text, is metamorpho, which we, of course, get our word metamorphosis. So Jesus was actually changed in form before them. And I'm not even sure that really even helps our imaginations fully understand what was going on. So the apostles were having this epiphany moment, another manifestation where these three disciples saw a brief glimpse of who Jesus really is. So try to imagine uh, that kind of a shocking aha moment when something you didn't expect was going to happen happened and the identity of someone uh, was revealed maybe the first time you ever learned who Kaiser Soje was and the usual suspects uh, or Professor Snape's secret and Harry Potter. I'm not going to give those away, but you know, those kind of moments where you're like, wow, I did not see that coming. I had no idea who this person was. And so for a moment, these disciples are illumined to see and understand Jesus 
truly is the Son of God. He is the King. He is the light that has come to shine into the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And Moses and Elijah being there reveals to the disciples that Jesus is truly going to be this culmination of all the law, the fulfillment of the law that's represented by Moses and the prophets represented by Elijah. And so Peter says in verse 5 and 6, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, Peter often gets a bad rap and gets made fun of for shooting off at the mouth, as Peter is wont to do. I mean, you sort of read this and be like, really, Peter? Let's make three tents. That's the best you can come up with in this uh, epiphany transfiguration moment. But actually, I think in a moment of terror, as the passage says, the disciples were, in fact, freaking out in this moment. They weren't just chill about what was happening. I mean, wouldn't you, if someone you knew started glowing as bright as the sun and people dead for over thousands of years started walking around talking to them? I think we'd probably be pretty terrified too. And in this moment of terror, I think what Peter says is actually on the right track. It's not just some random blabbering that that Peter uh, is wont to do. I think he's actually on the right track because What we were created for, initially, is this very thing. This is what we were created for, to dwell in the radiance of God's glory. That's what we were created to do, to dwell in the radiance of God's glory. All of God's holiness and justice, all of God's love, all of God's compassion, that is where we were meant to live. And even though we fell into sin and alienated ourselves from God's radiating glorious presence, God never stops pursuing us to bring us back, to try to draw us back home in the glory of God's presence. So Peter, at least in this moment, in the midst of his terror and being frightened, actually gets it right. And yet Jesus says they can't tell anyone and they also can't stay. They can't tell anyone and they can't stay. And just as suddenly as Jesus was transfigured before them, the cloud blows away. Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus is no longer radiating light with garments that no Tide detergent could ever bleach so clean. He's just back to his normal appearance. It's a curious thing. It's in the Gospel of Mark quite a bit. It also shows up in the other Gospels. Jesus commanding the disciples or people that he has healed not to say anything. Don't go tell anyone. Don't tell anyone what you've seen, what you've heard, what you've experienced. In fact, for the most part in the Gospels, the only people during Jesus's ministry who recognize Jesus as for who he truly is, the the son of God, the son of the most high are demon-possessed people. And even them, Jesus commands to be silent and to say nothing. They aren't supposed to tell anyone because the people, the disciples included, they aren't ready. They aren't ready for the kind of king that Jesus is. You know, on a few occasions, the crowd's 
marvel so much at Jesus' power and his words that they actually try to grab him and physically take him by force and make him king right then and there, like all the other kings of the nations. And if you read those passages somehow, every time they get excited and they just want to declare him king right now, Jesus finds some way to just, you know, just sort of slip away and he's gone and he won't let them do it. The disciples themselves, they had the same expectations. Oh, Oh, this guy, this king, he's the king who has come to kick the Romans out of the promised land and to elevate Israel back to the top of the world pecking order. And and, and guess what? When he does that, we get to be the inner circle. We're going to get to be right there next to him in power. And of course, they argued with themselves of who was going to be Jesus' favorite right-hand man. But this was their expectation of who Jesus was. And the reason he's not that kind of king that they expected or that they wanted and why they can't stay there on top of the mountain with Jesus shining bright as the sun. The reason why they cannot do any of those things is that he's going to die. He has to die. It says, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They had no category for that. What does he mean, rise from the dead? In order to rise from the dead, you must also be dead. What's that about? Well, this movement from the mountaintop to the valley, from the high back down to the low, it's very intentional. Because Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. He is moving towards death on a cross. And the disciples aren't ready for this. They're not ready to wrap their heads around this. It's why every time he talks about his death in the weeks to come during the season of Lent, as we march closer and closer to Jesus' crucifixion in Jerusalem, they, every time he talks about his death, they freak out. No way, Jesus. No way. You can't die. Peter and James and John especially had to struggle with how to wrap their minds around it, given that they got to see Jesus in this transfiguration moment and all his glory and all in this metamorphosis. Surely he's not going to die. They aren't ready for the kind of king God and Jesus Christ is. The kind of king who displays the glory of God in his love, in his love for sinners and rebels and traitors and scoundrels, and fools. The kind of king that lays down his own life by death on the cross so that all sons and daughters can be forgiven and freed from sin. So Jesus embodies this purpose in himself, moving out away from the presence of God's glory into the world by giving himself up. By giving up his life for sinners and rebels and scoundrels and fools, that he may become the light that all nations of the earth are drawn to, that many sons and daughters from every nation could come home to the light of the glory of God. And when they do, so that they too can begin to embody that light, moving towards Jesus as our home and our life by laboring together in order to order 
our lives, our habits of the home such that we commune with God in our work, in our play, in our rest, resisting the idolatry of sin in other places that are not our home. And then also in turn, moving from that home out to our neighbors, from the mountaintop to the valley. It's also a very intentional choice that the transfigure of Jesus is the passage that concludes the season of Epiphany. From the mountaintop of the transfiguration to the valley of Lent. Boo, right? Lent. But it's true to life, is it not? Is it this true to our experiences? Our mountaintop experiences, as powerful as they may be, they never seem to last as long as the valleys. Like Peter and James and John, they're over too soon. And the time comes to come back down the mountain to reality. But the good news is, our king, our king of glory doesn't leave us to go through the valley alone. He's already gone. He's already gone there before us and he continues to journey with us so that we can pray as the psalmist prays that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for he is with me. And he will journey with us all the way through the valley of Lent. Through his death on the cross on Good Friday. Back up the mountain of Easter. When we will celebrate that final lifting up of his resurrection life that vindicates and guarantees that no matter what, no matter mountains high or valleys low, no matter what, our home is always with God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you.